0: Hello everyone welcome back to another episode of the Casual Martial Artist with your hosts, Alan Marcus. So, how is it going with you today? Pretty good, you man? It has been one of those days, but you know, one of those days where sometimes I wish I could just go to the gym and just start punching something, like a punching bag, because of course, you know, punching people is generally frowned upon, unless you are a professional fighter, which in that case, punching people is actually considered a good thing. So today's topic is actually a little bit more up uh, your alley, and that is we're going to be talking about mixed martial arts and the UFC. Now, I have I think I mentioned this here and there, but as far as UFC, I haven't really followed it very religiously. My only real uh, experience watching UFC was back in college. My freshman year, my first roommate, uh, when, you know, I started getting into martial arts, and he, you know, he had a background in judo, so uh, what we, what he did one day is he, when he went home from spring break, or not spring break, Thanksgiving break, or he went home for a weekend, something like that, but he brought a videotape uh, back with him, and it had one of the early UFCs. Now, this would have been 94, so that would have, it may have been either the first or second one, I'm not quite sure, but... uh. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the first question, and that is mixed martial arts. How do we define what exactly is mixed martial arts? Because I've heard a couple different ways people have defined it. Uh, Some people say it's its own discipline. Other people say it's not. You know, it's just a sport art. It's not really something we should really put in the same, you know, the same, uh, trying to think of the best way to say this. It's not something we, we wouldn't put it in the same category as like karate or kung fu uh, or something like that. And then I've also heard people say it's not really a base style. So, again, since you know a bit more about uh, MMA than I do, how do you define mixed martial arts?
1: Um, I actually think that the answer would, is a generational thing since I'm a bit older. Uh, I define it as a sport, a sport that encompasses three ranges and... Uh, different kinds techniques from different kinds of styles. Usually three main ones but probably if you know, up to seven or eight different ones, depending on how you train. There's techniques you'll learn from all these styles if you you know, the deeper you get into it, but I don't fight as a mark or, or an art in and of itself.
0: Okay. So you're more along the lines of you see it uh no different from well not well different but you would put in the same category as like the amateur wrestling they do in like high school and college where while you can use some of those techniques in wrestling in a self-defense situation, uh, you see it as more like a, um, you see it more definitely as just a sport art.
1: Exactly. A lot of times it's marketed as an art in itself for reasons like an instructor would want to teach it and give belt rankings on that. I've seen that happen, so.
0: Yeah, and that's weird. I've never seen anywhere that's uh, or heard of anyone doing like belts in mixed martial arts. Like, hey, I'm a blue belt in mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. So and, I see you done. Yeah. Anywhere in this area here, or was it some just somewhere else? A little bit more than forty fifty miles from here. Okay, so somewhere in Wisconsin, just not in the not in the general area here. Right. 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 Yeah cuz uh the 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 couple places I've been by in the area that advertise as being um you know mixed martial arts I mean I haven't gone in so I actually I'm not familiar with their program but uh just mm-hmm. from what I've read about their websites it seems that again they they tend to focus more on the either the fitness or the sporting aspect so that's how right. they sell it as they don't sell it as the same thing like karate or kung fu or judo where right. you get a belt in it they Pitch it more is like this, you know, an activity that you can certainly do just if you want to get in better shape, you know, working on pads and, and, uh, you know, practice, you know, good nature grappling. But, and they also picture it again as that, that's combative sport. Now, mm-hmm. and I guess I have kind of a really weird way of looking at it. I, I tend for the most part. I tend to see it's very similar to you do, how you see it as like a, primarily a sport. But I think it also, I, I wouldn't really put it quite as its own distinct style. Because uh, I guess mm-hmm. you could argue that, okay, does someone who, you know, does okay, like for me, for example, back in college, I was studying Eskrima and Kung Fu at the same time. So I was studying two dis- different disciplines. Does that necessarily mean I was doing mixed martial arts back then? Right. Yeah. And, and
1: uh, No, go ahead. No, and every school is going to have their own pr- curriculum tweaked a little bit. And if you go back different, you know, the, the people who were doing it up until 2000, their emphasis probably would have been on the jujitsu part, whereas slowly... The stand up or different other arts like wrestling and um, you know what else anything else is crept in, and so the emphasis is different. it depends on the background of the practitioner or whatnot.
0: I guess in my opinion, in order for it to really truly considered a mixed martial art, it would have to incorporate the three ranges of combat we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know the strike well, I guess the way I see it is there's striking striking striking. Uh, ground fighting and then clinch fighting. So that's mm-hmm. what I always saw as the three the three ranges. Is that uh, what you usually define them as too, or no? I three. That's exactly how I would define it,
1: okay. just like you
0: did. So yeah, you have your standing grappling, your ground grappling, and then uh, you know, your striking, are punching and kicking. So I guess in my opinion, um, well, I can certainly see it as being a a. I can certainly see it as being that sport art. I think in order for it to really be considered mixed, we have to—you really have to take into account those three different things. Like I guess from my experience, even though I have had practice in, you know, I've studied, a, you know, a few different martial arts as we talked about before, I don't know if I'd really consider myself a mixed martial artist because mo- most of my training has been with. Uh, like joint locks, so that would be your standing grappling, you mm-hmm. know, your clinch fighting, and then striking. Uh, I'll be the first to admit my ground game would be pretty pathetic. So, uh, because I, you know, I've mentioned before that when back when I was in college, and also the place where I did American, well, back when I was in college, uh, there were some people I knew who did a little bit of grappling and worked out with them a little bit, and the place I did American freestyle karate. We didn't uh you know we did some groundwork there, but not a lot and as far as kung nu, you know as I mentioned before, it does incorporate judo, but i at my current level, I haven't gotten into the ground fighting aspects, most of the stuff judo stuff I've learned have been some throws and and breakfalls, okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about how we define what is a mixed martial art. We're going to take a look at a very brief, uh, simple history of it. Uh, we're not, you know, again, I know for one, I don't consider myself an expert on uh, the history of martial arts. But there are some places where we can see mixed martial arts taking root and how it's developed. So what I was, from an article I was reading, usually the first mixed martial art, there at least what a lot of people consider the first mixed martial art, well, I don't know the best way to say this. Maybe what formed the foundation of it was an ancient Greek sport art called Pankration. I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't know unless have you heard any different pronunciations mm-hmm.
1: or no, that's the way I always, always heard it
0: yeah, which and the reason some people consider that the you know probably the forerunner of mixed martial arts is because it incorporated both the striking and grappling aspects, right. Uh, also, there was another martial art, which actually I didn't know about this until I started actually researching this, Lei Tai, which is a form of Chinese no-holds-barred competition. And what was interesting is it was held on an elevated platform. So, you know, you could certainly knock out your opponent or you could get him to submit. But the other option is if you could throw them off of the platform, that would also make you the winner as well. So hmm. have you ever heard have you ever heard anything like that or was this I always
1: heard that the that the platform itself was called a lay tie. I never heard that it was a style in and of itself.
0: Yeah um, that usually the style hmm? Yeah, that you might be right on that. Um that's why I just put in my notes Lay Thai, but yeah, it was probably just the platform. So um right. but anyways, go on.
1: Normally the style they call the, the modern version of that is Sanshu or sanda. It's basically kickboxing with takedowns. But I've never heard of it being. The, I, I've never heard any verifiable claims of it being something that's done from ancient times. You know, there's you know a lot of lore to it, but no um, no wood carvings of techniques or anything like that that I've ever seen or any you know illustrate like drawings or
0: anything like that. Yeah, and and I think you are right. As I said, I think Lai Tai was the name of the actual platform. Um, Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and again, I while well, I think it had kind of that spirit of mixed martial arts where there was, like, the no-holds-barred, it wasn't really an art unto itself. Mm-hmm. Probably be best to explain it more as a type of match. Kind of like, you know, right. in pro wrestling, you got your steel cage matches, you got your dog collar chain matches, uh, and scaffold matches, and just about every type of gimmick match you can think of. It would be more along right. that line's. Uh, you know, so in theory, you could have someone who practiced uh, Tai Chi against someone who practiced Kung Fu or whatever, and that would be light Tai. So, well, the moving forward then into the 1800s, and this is, again, one of those martial arts I think you know a little bit more about than I do, and that is Savat, French kickboxing.
1: You hear a lot of different stories about how it came about. Um, some people say it. It, it ended up being a mix of street fighting and um, ballet dancing, actually, <laughs> because some of the pirouette type kicks, yeah, you've seen, I mean, some incredible guys, real tough guys have said this, so, and if you see the, the uniforms they wear, they wear these like long kind of leotard kind of things, you know, it's one of the things people always cut it down for, but um, um basically Say that to, to their face, face, right? <laughs> right, exactly. You'll get a shoot of the face, I know, because... <laughs> I practiced a little with some guys who knew what they were doing and there, there's nothing to joke about. I mean, that would actually be my preferred style of, uh, outside of the tie round kick, that would be my preferred style of kicking because of, you know, the nature of doing it with the shoes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because I was reading uh, one of my martial arts instructors in college. He uh, gave me this book. The It was some encyclopedia of martial arts. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading a little bit about Savat in there. And the, you, it's meant to be performed with boots because of the, and that's, you know, I can certainly understand with some of the momentum you get for some of those kicks, you know, you got some big heavy boots on, it's going to leave a mark. Right. Uh, Also that it may have been that it, it it took influence when these French sailors uh, came in contact with Asian cultures Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they learned some of these kicks, but it was event intentionally. It was initially designed as a way to keep uh, the soldiers in shape when they're out sailing on the ocean. So they would right. do these kicking exercises to keep their legs limber. So that's what I remember reading about it, but I certainly agree with you. I mean, I, I have seen their their uniform they wear, and it's like, right. yeah, I wouldn't go to one of these guys. You look like a sissy because you're probably getting, right. <laughs> getting a foot to Now, you got to
1: understand with the bot there's two styles there, too. There's the old... Street style that you know that you're talking about also, and the sports style box Francaise. The old street style, the punching there is more of a. It's kind of descended from bare knuckle boxing, but it's its own thing too because they do a lot of swinging punches and a lot of like um, circular flowy moves. They also do incorporate a lot of takedowns. Um, like I said, with the lutte parisienne. So there's you know there's that that art. It survived, but it almost died because of the two world wars. Yeah. But it's still, you know, there's still some people who do know it and do practice it. So you can find and that too.
0: Is it more practiced nowadays? Is it more practiced in the sport format or do you happen to know, are there places that still teach it as a, a self-defense style or primarily just for sport?
1: There are some that teach it as self-defense, but it's mostly a sport. Okay. But I, it exists and I know of people who do it, you know, I, not, where I could contact them and whatnot, but it's really hard to come by.
0: Yeah, and the only technique I really know from Savat, uh, we learned in uh it's like an oblique kick where it's like mm-hmm. you turn your foot out facing the side and you just kind of sweep forward. So it's a right. it's a a low kick to the, you know, to like the shin or you know the shin or the, and yeah the yeah. So it's not it's more like a a sneak quick sneaky kick that you might use if you're in close range of someone, right. So, moving forward to the late 1800s, during the Victorian age, uh, we saw the formation of, we saw the origin of a martial art called Bartitsu. And this was formed by Edward William Barton Wright. And he, some people consider him the first mixed martial artist, or at least the first mixed martial artist we can attach a name to. uh, Because what he did is he was an engineer who had spent some time in Japan. And while there, he learned some Aikido, learned some... Uh, I think he learned some jiu uh, some karate. So he learned a little bit of Asian fighting styles. And we do know he was... A, at least we know he is the first person to combine Eastern and Western fighting styles. So right. what Partitsu was originally developed for is a specific situation that was self-defense in the streets. So it combined... You know the bare knuckle boxing. It combined various uh, Asian grappling techniques. And as a matter of fact, that's what some people of the day used to call things like judo and jujitsu. They called it Japanese wrestling. Uh, also, right. he incorporated knife fighting as well as stick fighting with, you know, like a walking stick. Like uh, Yep. And then some of the a lot some of the techniques actually involved distraction. Like if you were trying to mug me, what I might do is, well, I might pretend I'm reaching for a wallet. If I've got like a handkerchief in my pocket, I might take it out and throw it at your face because that's going to, you know, distract you for a, a half a second so I can, you know, attack you. Or if I happen to be in a position where my jacket, maybe I'm not wearing it, but I'm like just slung it under my arm, throw my jacket in your face. So, uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's It's gotten a bit of a comeback in recent years, uh, because if you go look it up on YouTube, there are places that have tried to preserve it, um, because unfortunately, Barton really didn't apply, didn't really teach his art for very long. Uh, It was only for like two, three years, because unfortunately what had happened Mm -hmm. is he... Underestimated how many people would be willing to pay what he wanted to to charge for his lessons, so he really wasn't making a living doing it. Um, but other than that, I mean, he was it was he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways because he would he would promote fights between practitioners of different styles, so he would get these people trained in the you know European style wrestling and pit them against uh, fighters from you know jujitsu fighters from Japan. And oftentimes mm-hmm. these Greco-Roman wrestlers didn't do very well against the jiu-jitsu fighters because they, well, is there actually, is there a specific name for people who practice jiu-jitsu? Like, because I always just call them jiu-jitsu fighters or jiu-jitsu practitioners because I mean like judo, it's judoga, uh, karate, sometimes they call them karateka. Is there a name like that for jiu-jitsu or nothing? I've never know? heard one. It's not something that's popularly used. Okay, so calling them jujitsu fighters or jujitsu practitioners is uh, right, okay, so yeah, he they oftentimes these wrestlers, since they weren't used to submission style wrestling, they they never learned how to defend against these techniques and usually lost to them. Um, also, another thing that was noteworthy about him is he taught self defense to women suffragettes, uh, so. Yeah, it's kind of a shame his art really didn't go very far, uh, and it would have been forgotten if it wasn't for was it uh the guy who wrote Sherlock? Sherlock. Yeah. because uh, he had mentioned that uh he had mentioned in a story that uh that Sherlock Holmes was trained in this art, though he called it Baritsu instead of bartitsu, and again mm-hmm. he also uh would sometimes call it Japanese wrestling.
1: Right. Arthur Conan Doyle, Sir Roger Conan Doyle, I believe. Yeah,
0: yeah. for some reason I always get him Mm -hmm. and I think it's Robert Howard, the guy who wrote the Conan stories. Sometimes I get those two guys mixed up. I don't know why, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe it's because the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle has Conan in his name, so that makes me thinking of the barbarian, but anyways. (laughs) So moving forward, in the early 1900s, uh, there were also a series of mixed style contests that spread through Europe, Japan, and the Pacific Rim called Marican, which is Japanese slang for American fighting, which I really couldn't find much else about it. So This
1: is actually the first time ever hearing of it. So I know there were challenge matches, but I didn't know that there was a a proper name given to them.
0: Yeah, and again, it was more of a slang term, so... I don't know if they were specifically referring to Western boxing.
1: Also catch wrestlers. There were catch wrestlers that went up and grappled with the judoka and jujitsu fighters of the time.
0: Okay. So then, uh, now catch wrestling that, I believe that came from Sambo or did catch wrestling come before Sambo?
1: No. Um, catch wrestling depends on how you define it and define Sambo. Because Sambo is... Like, you, like we were talking earlier, um, judo. But it's also an amalgamation of different wrestling styles that existed in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, Armenian wrestling, Georgian wrestling, Chidaoba, certain Russian folk styles, Greco-Roman and freestyle, and uh, Mongolian wrestling, which is some really rough stuff. I don't know if you've ever seen it.
0: I haven't. Yeah, because... Actually, I've always wondered what's some of the differences between stuff because I hear people, I mean, usually I hear people talk about folk wrestling and Greco-Roman, but mm-hmm. I mean, do you happen to know what's the difference between different styles of wrestling? Is it just different like rule sets or?
1: Well, with Greco-Roman, you can only take someone down above the, with holding them above the waist, whereas folk wrestling, the kind we did in high school, you can, you know, the leg takedowns exist also. Okay.
0: So yeah, you can't then... do that in Greco. Yeah, and then I think some of the styles of folk wrestling, they're more developed for just uh, sport competition or sport purposes. One that comes to mind for me is a Nordic style of wrestling called Glimma, which mm-hmm. it's strictly meant for uh, sporting competition. What they would right. do is they'd have these belt-like harnesses that they would wear. And you started out, you would grab your opponent's uh, harness and you could only move in a clockwise direction and the, you know, the goal was to take down your opponent, you know, lifting them and throwing them with the belt. So right. uh, yeah, stuff like that, obviously not really intended for combat more as a, uh, as a, as a form of competition. Right. I was going to say, so that's how with some, well catch wrestling was its own thing,
1: um, different styles of wrestling that, formulated and started in england came to the states and then you know american wrestlers would go all over the world and face challenge matches so that's how that worked out
0: okay so was catch wrestling primarily just grappling or were they allowed to strike as well primary grappling They still had to follow the
1: sports rules of professional wrestling back in the day and amateur wrestling so pretty similar to the rules that you'd see now in professional wrestling but you know they they went down for real, and sometimes there was gentlemen's agreements not to do any, you know, any striking or anything underhanded like that. You know, they wanted to see who the better grappler was.
0: Well, moving into the 1920s, in Brazil, they had vale tudo, which means anything goes. So this was a no-holds-barred style of fighting. Now, um, I don't know too much about it other than, again, it being no-holds-barred about all i know about it comes from uh, a video i saw uh about a guy named Bart Vale i don't know if you ever heard of him or not
1: yeah he was a shoot wrestler in japan for a little while he's an american yeah. but he, he wrestled in japan
0: yeah cuz it was a part of a series by a guy called the pink man and uh he had a series called martial arts frauds and he did an mm-hmm. episode on Bart Vale and i apologize i haven't gone and you know double checked if any of this these claims are legit, but he was saying that what happened is when uh, he started moving into when he stopped fighting in Japan because the organization he fought with, it, even though it looked realistic, it was just as scripted as your regular professional wrestling is. Right. But when he came over to the uh, to the U.S., he tried to say that what he was doing was real fighting, and the thing that some people the reason some people gave him a little bit of credibility is he had a scripted win over Ken Shamrock who, you know, at the time was, you know, UF was in, was doing like, you know, legitimate UFC mixed martial arts matches over here. Um, right. but yeah, that's about all I know about Valetudo. Tudo. So I don't know if you know okay. any more. Yeah. Bardville and I Tudo have nothing to do with each other. Okay.
1: Uh, Valley Tudo basically started when, when, um, a gentleman, call him Count Koma, but his name was Mitsuo Mehta Koma. He taught, he emigrated from Japan to, to Brazil and taught the, you know, a lot of people uh, the style of Judo he was trained in called Kosen, Jitsu, J- Kosen Judo, which has a lot of ground fighting. And that became the father martial art of, our mother martial art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because one of the people he trained were the Gracie family. And so they trained together, modified it a little bit to adapt to their different body types and that's what eventually evolved into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Bali Tudo was just the challenge matches that they took to all comers that came because that's how he used to do it. He, to get more students into his school, he took challenge matches. So, and when people, you know, when he trashed everyone, then that's how he got more students. So that's, that was their marketing strategy on up until the UFCs. So now uh, Bart Vale, he was in an organization that was one of the, I'd say, grandchildren it the style and organization was like a grandchild catch wrestling it um it was called professional wrestling Fujiwara Gumi um gentleman Yoshihisa Fujiwara was a, trained by catch wrestlers and trained by other grappling artists like samboists and um judo practitioners so he knew his stuff to this day he's one is total badass you know he's in his six I think he's closing in on his 70s but he can still throw down pretty hard Okay. Um, so th- he was just the champion of that organization for a little while. And, uh, you know, a lot of those guys ended up committing, are uh, competing in MMA. Okay.
0: Okay. So moving to 1936, uh, we had boxer Kingfish Levinsky and catch wrestler Ray Steele. So this was, uh, one of the, this was considered one of the earliest cross style fights which according to my research uh steel won in about 35 seconds so the uh, catch wrestler actually beat the boxer so
1: like i say generally boxers don't know much once you get them off their feet and close or close the gap with them they normally don't know much you know how to take care of themselves
0: yeah and and that's certainly a good point uh because yeah if you're not and also i would think you know with the boxing gloves on it really makes it hard to grapple because uh, you can't really get a good. I think I would have think that would be hard to get a really good lock in since you don't have right. You don't have the full mobility of your hands, right. So and remember the boxing bare knuckle style
1: boxing incorporated grappling. Um, you could pick up your opponent and toss them on the ground. So, um, boxers back then, in the bare knuckle era, would have known how to take care of themselves against a wrestler because they would have been trained in wrestling themselves. Mm-hmm. But as the two are as that died out and just the gloved fighting. Style of boxing emerged. You know, boxers don't know any, a lot about defending themselves against a grappler anymore.
0: Okay, well the next one I read about, and you corrected me on this one here with the uh, judoka, uh, uh Kumura, against uh, Helio Gracie, and in this one Kumura won with an armbar. Though you said it was actually just it's most people consider it like more of a footnote in the history of mma it's not really considered a major event
1: depends on how big a fan you are the gracie family (laughs) you know it was a major event okay so like the challenge matches that i told you about um gracie defeated one of kimura's students and kimura took that as an honor Uh, you know he had to avenge his honor because he was a big deal in japan at the time so that's why he came over and uh, fought hilo gracie but the match lasted i think like two hours or something like that and he was so impressed with gracie that you know he gave him most of the praise anyway because he was probably 120 130 pounds soaking wet whereas Camaro was this big stocky dude mm-hmm. you know he was short but he was like i think 200 pounds full of muscle if mm-hmm. i'm not rem- if i'm remembering right but i don't know if it depends on you know what your slant is on the history of mma me to me it's Was an important fight, but it wasn't like the important fight. I mean, it just something that helped the development along.
0: Okay. 1963 uh, saw judoka Jean Labelle against boxer Milo Savage. And this was considered the first televised mixed style fight in North America. And Mm -hmm. this one, Labelle won with a rear naked choke. So, uh, again, as you said before, as you were saying before, uh, labelle probably had the advantage here because uh with the boxer you know usually if that's all they've done they don't really know much about what to do when they get on the ground right okay uh 1963 and i didn't take down the names but there was uh three karate fighters from japan challenged three muay thai uh fighters from thailand and this one the japan team won two to one So again, that's where we see it's more just striking, but again, this whole idea where we start to see people taking interest in doing cross style fighting. And right Mm -hmm. now, when we get to the 60s and 70s, uh, the era where Bruce Lee was really big, now he people who a lot of people like to consider Bruce Lee the spiritual father of mixed martial arts. And he, this is around the time he was doing his Jeet Kune Do. And in Lee's words, the best fighter is not a boxer, karate, or judo man. The best fighter is someone who can adopt to any style, to be formless, to adopt an individual's own style, and not following the system of styles. So I know you've uh, read a little bit about Jeet Kune Do, correct? Mm hmm. Okay. And because I have the book, The Tao of Ji Kune Do, but I haven't really uh, read too much into it. I mean, I paged through it, but I haven't had a chance to like just read it cover to cover. Right. It was my primer
1: in learning how to box, actually.
0: Okay. Yeah. And uh, another one of his famous quotes that I always liked, um, he often talked about water and how, you know, water is formless and you pour it into a cup, it becomes the cup. You pour it into a, a a kettle it becomes the kettle so you have to learn to be flexible like that and adapt to your environment And uh, you know water can flow and crash you know I, I get i don't remember exactly how it you know the quote goes but i always thought that was a very influential uh, quote and mm-hmm. that's one of the things i did like about the philosophy that bruce lee was taking because i think at this time uh, he, now, I, if I'm not mistaken at this time, the the, primera, the major Asian fighting styles you saw in the U.S. were usually karate or judo. Uh, you didn't see as much of the other styles. Um, I mean, I don't think Kung Fu was really as widespread back then. As far as I recall, and again, I, I'll have to research this further because I don't know if this is entirely... Uh, folk, if this is entirely true or, or only partly true, but uh, when some of these Asian martial arts came to the U.S. generally through uh, the West Coast, because you had Asian workers coming in um, to work on mining or or on farms, they weren't, since they were sometimes treated as second-class citizens, they weren't always open to the idea of teaching Westerners their fighting styles. Uh, so the it was in the case of uh chinese martial artists it was very it was rare for a while to find one that would teach westerners their arts uh i know a also went through the same thing uh, cuz when i first started a my instructor had a packet he created for us and it was talking about angel kabbalas mm-hmm. i think that's how you pronounce his last name But he was, uh, again, he was one of those exceptions back then where uh, he was teaching a screamer to non-Filipinos. And, you know, that made some people, uh, you know, upset at him. But, you know, eventually these arts did start to take hold. And, I mean, even if Bruce Lee's not the first person to really truly be considered a mixed martial artist, I can understand with his philosophies he, he definitely had an influence even if he wasn't the first person to do it exactly okay 1976 this is the year we saw muhammad ali versus antonio inaki with the fight ending in a draw and ali suffering some damage to his legs now i the other day i went to youtube and looked up the video and now you said you hadn't seen the video you just saw some pictures from it and clips yeah yeah I think I made it to like round two or three, maybe, and it's like this is boring because right. you know you put it that uh, when we were talking about it before, you're like, yeah, it's basically just most of it was uh, Inoki doing the Brazilian butt scoot around the ring while Muhammad Ali was trying to do something.
1: Right. Like I said, um, I always wonder. I've never understood exactly what the rules were for that match. Um. And plus that, it's like, like I told you, I've seen other boxers in the modern era um, go up to Japan and get trashed in some organ- in different competitions. Roberto Duran, Matthew Saad Muhammad, and Trevor Burbick. I mean, that absolutely didn't take long for them to get tooled. So I'm wondering if someone told them to go out there and, and not, you know, take Ali out right away, you know, because remember, this was – a boxer in his prime would have trouble against, uh you know, a guy with enoki skills. Forget about Ali being past his prime, which he was way past his prime by this time, and and they would have had a hard time getting another American boxer to come over and, you know, face one of them if if he got trash. If you know the best, the the greatest got trash right away. So yeah, from a pure money making standpoint, you know, just. But then again, Anoki didn't want to get knocked out himself. Only so you know. i'm not exactly sure what was going on there
0: can you blame him i mean would you want to get in a fist fight with muhammad ali
1: no but if i was had his skills i'd probably be confident enough that i could close in and take him down
0: and as far as i know i don't think they had a specific rule set other than your standard like no kicks to the groin or gouging the eyes type stuff um and the reason Mm -hmm. that uh, they a lot of people think that the fight went the way it did is neither one would engage the other in their st- in their style, which right. as you discussed, you know, Inaki probably didn't think that he would be able to win in a punching match with with uh, Ali, so that's why he spent most of it on the ground kicking because he was trying to go Ali into getting on the ground with him, and again, Ali probably realized that he wouldn't be able to properly grapple with you know, glo- the, the the boxing gloves on. And, I mean, I don't know how much grappling Ali knew, but, again, if he, he probably realized that if he went down to the ground, Inaki probably would have, uh, you know, probably would have ended the fight. And I don't right. know about you, but if I was in attendance at that match, I probably would have asked for a refund. Yep. Because... <laughs> exactly. I mean, it... Yeah, I mean, I was boring. It was least, boring. a joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I can at least give Ali a little credit from what I did watch of it. He looked like he tried to make a show of it, but then again, I understand that's what Ali did. He was known for his snappy patter and, right, um, you know, really, I I almost want to say kind of goofing around a little bit because he right. kind of did that with in this match, and I don't know if he would uh if he was doing that intentionally or. But like there are times where he was kicking, and if Ali had like got back far enough, he would do this like little shuffle or something. So right. you know, it was trying to look like he was trying to taunt him. But right. yeah, I mean, I don't mind watching it on YouTube. But if I was in attendance there, I probably would have asked for a refund. Right. <laughs> or at least hopefully there was enough other fights on the card to make it worth it. I mean, I don't know if there were other fighters or if it was just uh, you know, or if it was just um, you know, Ali versus Inaki that night.
1: Exactly
0: so okay moving on in 1985 shudo forms and this was formed by a wrestler Satoru uh sayama mm-hmm. and it has its roots in a form of of shoot wrestling that was popular in japan and again it used those realistic looking techniques
1: mm-hmm. okay now sayama he comes out of that same class where okay the style that Shudo came out of, that he was a part of at first, that was the same organization, more or less, that Bart Vale came out of. You can trace the lineage of people who trained, you know, from Inoki to this German name um, uh, Tatsumi Fujinami, then to the Fuji, uh, Mr. Fujiwara, and then who then trained um, Akira Akirameda who did Rings Fighting Network, which is a was kind of like Shudo. To Suzuki and Funaki who did Pancrase, which is what Ken Shamrock, you know, where he cut his teeth learning mixed martial arts. So, it wasn't just Sayama. It was a a bunch of guys who tried to make things more realistic. And um, that's how they, you know, transitioned into mixed martial arts.
0: Yeah, because a friend of mine read one of the biographies uh, written by Mick Foley. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, who in wrestling he did man, you know, mankind, dude love, and cactus jack. Right. Uh, those were his main, um, you know, personas that he had. And it was interesting. I mean, apparently it, he was saying that usually there's like three types of wrestling holds there's ones that look like they hurt, but they don't. There's ones that don't look like they hurt and they don't. And then there's ones that don't look like they hurt but they hurt like hell so right. uh yeah I, so you mean it, it so so they try to do that more theatrical where they were doing these moves that again it looked they looked impractical in a real fight but they looked good in front of the camera
1: no these guys actually did real submission moves I okay. mean
0: the the, that's winner the background knew... uh that's the background that uh sayama came from correct
1: right okay. like like he was a real professional wrestler, remember? he Thank I you. told you he was the original Tiger Mask. Yeah. So if you look up Tiger Mask on in on YouTube, you'll see many of his matches. Um, But the style of shoot wrestling was the winner, usually nine times out of the ten, the winner knew who he was, the loser knew who he was. But how they got there was up in the air, and they would try to go at it, you know, semi-real, using real submission holds, real kicks, and real open hand strikes to the face. So it was like you had okay. to be tough because – even if you were jobbing that night, you know, you were still going to get hit for real and the other guy was going to get hit for real.
0: So there was no drop kicks or anything like that. You were going to get Muay
1: Thai kicked to the leg.
0: Okay, that's yeah, I didn't know that. That's uh mm-hmm. that's interesting. Um so now 1993, that's when the first UFC was held. And I remember watching one video about it, the early UFC and uh one of the commentators was saying that well he compared it to a video game that was popular around the time, Street Fighter 2. And I, I know you said you're not really, you said before you're not really much into video games. Right. Um, but Street Fighter 2, one of the things that was really the defining characteristic of that game, it was probably one of the first Street Fighting video games where they were really you know, where they were really uh, making a big deal out of the fact that each one of these characters had a different fighting style. And they mm-hmm. were using real fighting styles and not, well, real as in, you know, real names, not necessarily the stuff that they, they would do in the game being realistic. But, uh you know, because like a lot of earlier games, it was two like generic karate, guys in karate geese or something like that. But like in Street Fighter 2, you know, you had Ken and Ryu who were Shotokan karate. uh You had Chun-Li who was Wushu. Uh, you had... E-Honda, which was a sumo wrestler, uh, and and so on. And one commentator was saying that the UFC, the reason people were excited about it, it would be like Street Fighter II in real life. Because the original purpose of UFC was to see whose art was truly the best. So right. it would be like, okay, now we're going to watch a jujitsu jitsu practitioner fight against a kung fu guy. And next we're going to watch a karate fighter go against a judoga. So the original purpose of these competitions was to see how these different styles would fare against each other. And that's the one where, uh, Hoist Gracie ended up pretty much showing the world that Brazilian jiu-jitsu and how effective it can be in, in, in competition. Exactly. Um, it wasn't until I guess the
1: wrestlers started coming in, you know, from my observation that the wrestlers started coming in that where you got to be it started evolving into more of a mixed martial arts. That and rule changes, because remember they the original format um, from Brazil had no time limit. That's how the challenge matches were done. But when it got to the UFC, you know, they started implementing time limits then gloves, then rounds they went from the tournament format to the solo match of every night turn turn format. So it, as the rules evolve and as the styles have evolved, that's what I think uh, gives you what this, the format you have today.
0: From the UFC matches I've seen, which again, I admit is not a lot. I also noticed that, yeah, that's where it seemed as time progressed with UFC um, and mixed martial arts in general, it stopped being about, you know, karate versus wrestling or, you know, kung fu versus aikido, um, mm-hmm. you know, boxing versus judo stuff like that. And that's when it it started becoming just mixed martial arts because you started to see the the athletes involved in this sport incorporating you know the different right. styles. So it wasn't just I'm going in as a karate fighter, I'm going in as a kung fu fighter. I'm going in as a jujitsu fighter. Um, also, right. as I recall, a lot in the earlier UFCs, if you studied karate, you wore your karate gi into the ring, and then now it seems people don't really do that as often. Uh, usually, they're just going to go in, you know, wearing you you know tights, and you know, in the case of the women, like the you know the the sports bra top.
1: Right. Actually, I believe it's illegal in this country to fight an MMA fight with a gi on. You can do it in Japan, but you can't do it in the U.S.
0: Yeah, and and I know we've talked a little bit about this before, uh, with you know a gi, that you know in some ways it's more advantageous for you to go into a fight like that without a gi, because you know, when you are doing gi versus gi, it opens up, you know a lot. It opens up different techniques that you can't do against someone who's you know just wearing you know a, a tights and shoes and that's it uh you know no shirt right. or anything like that um now as i recall also eventually they started doing the martial the mma gloves whereas in the earlier ufcs it was you know it was all bare knuckle
1: right there were some guys that broke their knuckles and ruined their careers so to have a little bit more longevity the gloves helped
0: yeah and that's um one of the youtube shows i like watching martial arts journey when he was talking about mma He was saying that that he thinks one of the reasons that you saw the grapplers do better is because they didn't really have to worry as much about the punching. Whereas if you got someone, Mm -hmm. all they know how to do is punch and kick, they do have to be more careful about how they land their blows so they're not, as you said, breaking their knuckles or breaking their toes or anything like that. Exactly. So that's our brief history of MMA. And so now it's pretty much become probably one of the more popular con- full contact sports. I don't know if it's eclipsed boxing or if boxing is still considered more popular. Um, I'd say as a whole, maybe it, it's gotten really close. Boxing
1: still has some stars here and there that are more popular than anyone in the UFC is. But pretty close to eclipsing boxing. Yeah. Yeah. At least in this country.
0: Now, one of the questions I want to discuss is let's look at the relationship between mixed martial arts and traditional martial arts. And we talked about we touched on this a little bit in our last episode. Are traditional martial arts still relevant? With the growing popularity of you know, with the growing popularity of um MMA and UFC, there are people that are questioning whether you should still learn something like karate or kung fu or, you know, as we were talking about before. And again, you go to YouTube, you'll see all sorts of videos about this where people say that unless you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or kickboxing, you're wasting your time. So in your opinion, what do you think are some of the positive? Well, let's start with the positive. What do you think are some of the positive effects that MMA has had on traditional martial arts?
1: I think it's exposed some of the techniques and training methods that are outdated.
0: And I agree with you on that. Um, I think, if anything, it's helped show, and this is, again, this is more impacting towards me because my primary martial arts background has been striking arts, where, again, mm-hmm. you've had a bit, you've had a, a more striking and grappling it's really I think it's really enlightened those of us who did things like karate, kung fu, and taekwondo because it made us realize that just learning how to punch and kick might not always be enough. And again, it goes back to what Bruce Lee was saying how the best fighter is one who can adopt adapt to any style and anything that's thrown against him. So that's one thing that I think it's done positive for traditional martial arts. It made us realize that we can't just pigeonhole ourselves into just striking or just clinching or just grappling. We have to know how to do, you know, if we want to be a really effective fighter, we really should learn a little bit about all three, you know, ranges of fighting. What about negative? I think it's brought in, I don't want to get
1: beeped off for saying, you know, for how I describe it, but just the uh, the negative attitude element I don't like that the whole um, machismo kind of thing you know it, it's kind of off-putting it's why one of the reasons I stopped watching it you know it's it just attracts a bad element I would never go to see a show like that live because then you get audience members who start drinking and thinking they're one of those guys and you know <laughs> yeah I end up having to go to jail for the night because you took out one of those you know cats for modeling off on you so I don't want to. Yeah, I wouldn't put, subject myself to that.
0: Yeah, and I have to say probably, the for me, the biggest negative aspect that the popularity of MMA has is it has, I think it has led to people disrespecting, you know, people like me who do traditional martial arts, you know, karate, kung fu, whatever. And usually the three martial arts that generally take the most heat are Aikido, Tai Chi, and... Uh, Wing Chung, you know, a lot of people say that, uh, you know, said, go to YouTube, you'll find tons of videos with people, you know, saying that, okay, those three arts, they're not effective, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're useless in a real fight. And and I know what, sometimes in the com when you look at the comments, there'll be people saying, okay, another person who's probably never practiced these arts before trying to say they're useless. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's one of the negative aspects where people, they if you like, if I tell them, oh, I do kung Nu, and then they're like, oh, well, you're not doing BJJ or kickboxing, so you you're wasting your time. You might as well be right. just playing Mike Tyson's Punch Out, and it's gonna do you as much good. And it's like, yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I do agree. I think that there can be more of a machismo among the maybe more among the fans than the actual practitioners. Because uh, one of the again, the guy who does martial arts journey. He was saying that he actually found a lot of the MMA guys that he's, you know, worked out with to be actually usually quite down to earth. And he was mentioning that uh, he had that video where he wanted to see how his Aikido would work against an MMA fighter. You know, so he contacted an MMA guy and they, you know, they engaged engaged in, um, you know, a sparring match. It wasn't like full contact, but they had the pads and the safety equipment on and, you know, he found that the people who were giving the most negative criticism were usually people who said that they did a keto. You know, they were saying, oh, you're doing it wrong, or you are you you don't truly understand how it works. But he often said a lot of the people who did MMA or or BJJ or kickboxing, they're like, I respect you for getting in that ring and seeing if your techniques work. So, mm-hmm. I don't know but I'm, I any martial art of course you're going to have the people who are just wonderful human beings really down to earth and then you're going to have yeah the, the machismo people who think that you know you know what I mean <laughs> exactly. so, yeah so as we end this episode uh one thing I'd like to talk a little bit about and I remember when we were this was I think in my last year in college mm-hmm. um you had mentioned that you were going to you were thinking of trying to get involved in MMA. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience trying to go into becoming an M- a paid MMA fighter?
1: Well, back then, it was like the Wild Wild West. You, uh, you know, there were people doing shows regionally that you could get involved with just by emailing or making some phone- cold phone calls. And I had a professional match offered to me and was just about to accept it um looked on my call waiting because at the time I had a landline so <laughs> sh- should tell you how, how long ago this was and then at the time the name that came on my caller id was a uh, one of the ufc fighters that was out at the time but it wasn't him it was his assistant and um the assistant offered me a, a fight on a week's notice for 250 and i thought to myself okay you know this is my way in and i'll take that fight so I said, just let me think about it. There were some people I wanted to, who I trusted and wanted to ask about it. I'd been training for about two years and I figured, you know, I thought I'd had um enough experience under my belt to where I could enter into this. And then she told me who it was. And it was a guy at the time who had fought 25 times and he, you know, he'd gone to Brazil and he, I knew who he was cause I'd heard of him, you know, following MMA news. And at the time he's probably the best B level fighter in the world. I would think, you know, in my estimation. And I said, okay, let me think about this. So I'm thinking to myself, hmm, $250 on a week's notice to fight probably the best V-level fighter in the country in my pro debut. Um, nah, <laughs> I think I'll pass on that one. And the irony is, um, one of my best friends, gentlemen that I've known since 96, and he used to train with a lot of MMA fighters like Jeremy Horn and whatnot in the Midwest area. Uh, we were talking one night about two years ago, and I told him the story about the fighter that I was, they tried to match me against. And he goes, are you kidding me? I go, no, he goes, they, I, they tried to offer me a fight with him one time too. And I like, really, and you know, we started comparing notes and he, he, you know, he, he told the guys to go F themselves as soon as they to mention the name of the guy. I didn't go that far. I just said, you know what? No, not for my pro debut, but I think we were probably the only Midwest fighters that didn't fight that guy. Cause he, fought just about everyone who fought in the, you know, in this Midwest area.
0: Did he have yeah. a? Yep. Did he have a really good record, or was he? Um, I mean, how was his win loss record at the time? Was he, you know, was he usually winning his matches, or was he usually on the losing end?
1: He was, um, like I said, probably the best at the time, best B level fighter. He was when I, they matched me against him. He was like twenty wins, three losses, and two draws, or something like that. And now he had a most he had a winning record at his retirement. I think he fought. Probably sixty times. And maybe at most of his losses came at the end of his career. I think he lost like twelve, thirteen times, but all of all at the end.
0: So You know, and what surprised me is how you're saying how little they would offer for it. Now granted I, I realize, you know, they're not gonna pay you millions of dollars, but I mean it's like two hundred and fifty bucks, it's like I mean, granted, okay, how long would a match have gone? you know, probably just a couple of minutes. So yeah, maybe you're getting, okay, it's good for, you know, if you consider it like hourly rate, you know, you're doing pretty good there, but it's like, I mean, you're putting yourself on the line there and let's face it in MMA, there is a real possibility of getting hurt. I mean, what did they say? Anything like if you would have fought and let's say, you know, you suffered a concussion or, you know, a broken wrist or something, would they have offered anything to help cover it or were you pretty much on your own? Nope, that was all on you. Any injuries sustained were all on you.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure with
0: like the smaller regional organizations, it's pretty much
1: the same thing. You know, it's to, you You know, hopefully you have good insurance, which I didn't even have at the time. So it would have been doubly dangerous for me. So that's why I decided that nah, I'll just, I was I had gotten married anyway which pretty much kneecapped my MMA aspirations. So
0: so looking back, do you ever wish that you maybe did take the chance and you did decide to do the fight or do you think you're pretty you're probably better off not uh, having said no to that opportunity?
1: I regretted it for many years, but I've um I'm into a few things right now where I'm lucky I didn't get into that business. And it's like any other business, you know, Promoters are more crooked than a barrel of snakes. You know, they their job is to make themselves money, not to pay the fighter money. So they'll try to nickel and dime the fighter for anything they can. So it's just how the business goes. And not only that, everyone, I'd say, there's only been two top 10 fighters I've ever known of that I didn't suspect of taking steroids. Uh, Fedor Milianko and BJ Penn. Otherwise, I've suspected just about every other top top 30, top 40 MMA fighter to have been on gear in some way or another. This is just my speculation. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying I know it for a fact, but I know I was offered steroids twice, and I hadn't even made a pro debut yet, you know, so, well, you know, take that for what it's worth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's certainly an interesting, but, yeah, it, uh, and I, I think you were saying, though, it's like usually Japan, it, they'll offer you a bit more for a, a fight,
1: yeah, um, I tried to get into the Pancreis organization, the organization that uh, Ken Shamrock, he, once, he started with um, Suzuki and Funaki. And um, they were offering at the time for nobody's, you know, you could make 1500 bucks a fight and travel over to Japan and, you know, get your name out there. So that was a little bit more money, still not a whole lot.
0: The question is: Oh, what did they have paid for the travel expenses, or was that again, yeah. was that on you? Okay.
1: No, no, they they sent even the the little organization I almost fought in um, for the two hundred fifty bucks. They were going to pay my travel expenses, hotel expenses too. So that they did cover, but um, in J- but Japan, no, you're treated pretty much like a king back then. You know, if you were fighting on a card, because you know, they know how to treat a fighter.
0: Well, that's cool, and I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I it makes you wonder what it's like for the people who are in the big leagues. Um, you know, how much, I mean, I don't know how much they usually make per fight, but, I mean, then again, when you've got some of the, I mean, I don't know who's, who's hot right now in the, in the UFC, but uh, they probably command a big, probably a little bit more than $250 for a fight.
1: <laughs> right. Their purses so. are sometimes it's a million dollars. So also um, the way I was trying to enter it, if a guy were to do that nowadays, they would kind of get, and, and, you know, you end up losing because you take so many fights on, like, a few days' notice or whatnot. You end up getting a rep as, you know, basically being the MMA equivalent of a job or so. You know, I didn't want that for myself. I wanted to have a legit career, you know, manage it the right way. Even if it was my, myself, me handling myself, I would have, you know, want that kind of situation.
0: Yeah, and, yeah, of course, that's another thing you got to think of if it's just like uh, something you do every now and then. I mean, if you've got a full-time job that's, you know, paying your bills, you still have to kind of think, okay, well, what if they're going to schedule me to fight on a day I have to work and if I can't get off, then it's like, well, do I do a no-show and, you know, do I do a no-show and, you know, risk my martial arts career or, you know, but keep my regular day job or do I risk losing my regular steady income? you know, just for one night, which may right. or may not translate to another fight. And as, you know, we discussed, it's like, yeah, you could very well get hurt during that. And of course, if you did get hurt in the ring, then how is that going to impact your day job? So exactly. So it's not all as, uh, as glamorous as people probably like to make it out to be, huh?
1: Right. You know, 250 bucks a pop. I mean, and back those back then in a regional show, that was pretty standard. I don't know what the purses are like now, but you know when you first started in the business, you were, you were really hurting for money. If that's, I, I remember one guy in one of the earlier shows. I don't know if it was the UFC or what, but he was talking about how you know this is the way I feed my family. And I'm thinking to myself, your family must be pretty skinny if you're feeding them off what you're making there, because back then the UFC only paid like fifteen hundred bucks a pop. So
0: yeah, and it's not like you're going to be fighting every single week, and you know you're not going to be fight. Well, okay, so if they're paying you fifteen hundred a week, I mean. Let's see. Math is hard. Uh, calculator. What is, okay, so if you did a fight a week for $1,500, okay, so, seven. well, $78,000. I'm sure in most places that's a pretty good wage. hmm <laughs> So, well, uh, any, before we end today, do you have any words of advice for anyone out there who is thinking that they want to be an MMA fighter and who maybe does want to try to get involved in it?
1: Um, go to a legit school, um, make some legit connections, and get yourself a, a manager that's not gonna Scream put you in front over. of a trip. Yeah, exactly, and put you in front of a freight train just to get a paycheck. I mean, because boxing's like that, MMA can be like that, and you know, you're gonna have to live a life after your career's over. So you know, you got to make sure you're not permanently injured either by the if with from someone offering you gear, you know, steroids and whatnot, or someone put you in a fight you're not ready for or you know making you fight when you're not a hundred percent like you could be have a, a bad flu or something and come in like 75 percent well sometimes that's not going to cut it and you're going to get hurt that night and then what you know you once you retire your brains are all going to be all scrambled that's something i didn't want for myself because um not so much mma but boxing a lot of my heroes you know ended up um brain damaged and broken you know sometimes living off the streets i didn't want that for myself so that's why i didn't pursue either of those careers as much as i would have liked
0: yeah and even in professional wrestling too i mean uh you remember chris benoit Mm -hmm. how you know a few years ago he you know he killed him he killed his wife and son and then killed himself and some people did think it was brain damage because you know his finishing move one of his finishing moves was his diving headbutt off the top rope and but yeah, that right. is a, you know, that is certainly a good point. So yeah.
1: And even those guys, I mean, it's funny you should mention professional wrestling and maybe we'll talk about that more when we do our wrestling uh segment, but a lot of those cats uh when I used to go to the shows live in Texas when I lived there when I was little, um, you'd see a lot of the old-timers wrestling on the undercard off TV in, you know, the very beginning of the uh show and you know, you just felt bad for them because those cats—they were, you know, probably really good at one point in their career, but they were jobbers at that time because their bodies had broken down so much. Yeah. You know, and the matches lasted what two, three minutes. And they were true. in there just basically for lunch money. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I, I don't have, I don't know much, but I don't really think I have anything more to say about this topic for now. So I, I mean, I think it is interesting to see how MMA has changed, and mm-hmm. you know, again, as both of us are in agreement. You know, it, it's had some positive impacts on... We, we think it's had both positive and negative impacts on traditional martial arts, which, you know, again, we discussed a little bit in the last episode. But,
1: mm-hmm.
0: well, for that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening and keep those kicks above the belt and below the face. Check out the guys over at Eclectic Media Project. They bring you podcasts such as Musically Challenged. Whose podcast is it anyway? Want to hear something interesting? And their newest podcast, page 3.14 News. Check them out on Podbean and iTunes at Eclectic Media Project. On their website at www.eclecticmediaproject.com. Check them out as they are the home with a little something for almost everyone.